You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Emily Neumeyer. The topic of our discussion today is Aleppo, the image of an Ottoman city. That's the title of the book by our guest today, Hagnar Wattenpah, who's an associate professor of art history at UC Davis. Uh, her book, uh, subtitle is Imperial Architecture and Urban Experience in Aleppo in the 16th and 17th centuries, was published basically a decade ago now, 2004. But of course, with what has happened to the city of Aleppo in recent years with the war in Syria, the history of the, these these buildings, many of which have been badly damaged or destroyed, is very much uh, in the forefront today. Dr. Wattenpah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Emily. So what we're hoping to do today, and I'm glad we have Emily along, who's more of an art and architecture historian than myself, we're going to talk about how to think about buildings and architecture and their place and their function in Ottoman cities, and uh, also think about the legal, political, and indeed social worlds within which buildings are created. And this episode is the final episode in, in a month-long series on the history of time and, and space that we started off with Emily and we moved into a discussion of time with uh, Avner Vishnitzer. And now we've come all the way to discuss these spaces. Of course, buildings oftentimes are uh, remnants of the past and they're available to us visually When we go around cities, we can see them, we can touch them, we can enter them. But in a lot of ways, um, certain aspects of buildings are lost. And one of the things that um, I think Hegnar does so well in her work is to recover a lot of the aspects of the urban space that are now lost to us through either documents or biographies, uh, local biographies. The, the book was a product of a time when urban history was central to Ottoman studies and when the study of the Ottoman provinces, particularly the Arab provinces, and their reintegration into Ottoman history was gaining momentum. The project for that, the, that book, which grew out of my dissertation, was to reimagine an urban history of Aleppo as a city that was reintegrated in its early modern Ottoman environment. Uh, When I was doing my research in the later 90s, it was a time when Syria and Turkey were not on friendly terms. And one of the first things that I learned when I started doing research in Syria is how erased the Ottoman past, how silenced the Ottoman layer of Syria's history was. And there were many reasons for for that. But one of the effects of that was this was a jarring impression whereby the bulk of the material remains of the cities of Syria as they stood in the later 90s were Ottoman, they were made in the Ottoman period, they were used in the Ottoman period, they were reimagined, rearranged, manipulated uh, according to Ottoman projects and Ottoman ideas. And yet, in the later 20th century, that era was made completely invisible. 
so as I uh, began to um, write my dissertation and then the book, my project began, became a project of reclamation of that blank space in the history of what is today Syria that had been the Ottoman period of those lands that had such an important impact, especially on urban history. And that erasure kind of goes both ways, right? You you talked about how the Ottoman past is erased from some of the uh, historical memory of, of Syria, but also how the Arab provinces of the former Ottoman Empire are kind of erased from the uh, remembered geography of a historical past in Turkey. It, uh, we have to note here that during the early modern period, Aleppo is one of the largest cities in the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, the third largest city in the Ottoman Empire. And yes, uh, when I um, started doing research uh, in Turkey, it was not as common for an uh, what we used to be called Arabists to uh, an Arabist working on the Ottoman period to go to Turkey to learn Turkish, to learn Ottoman. Uh, it, it's now, and fortunately so, uh, more commonplace to expect of someone who works on the Arab provinces, so-called Arab provinces, to know Ottoman, to be able to use Ottoman sources. Uh, but at that time, it was still new. And it, it was particularly complicated for me because at the time, as as now, I was a citizen of Lebanon. So to navigate crossing borders between Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey in order to access the kinds of um, archives and other resources needed to do my project was in itself instructive because it taught me about the contemporaneous relationships between these three places, these three republics, and the reasons why certain silences were so carefully nurtured and certain erasures were put into place. So in your project, you also, um, in terms of reclaiming the Ottoman past, it also becomes part of your story, of the story itself, the reclamation or the reorientation of the Mamluk um, legacy in the Ottoman period. Um, your project starts in the 16th century with the conquest of uh, the Ottoman conquest of Syria, and I think so much of your book really um, deals with this: um, how the Ottomans, in terms of visual and legal aspects and social aspects in the city, how they sort of encounter that um, that legacy. Um, in the city, in the in the space, and how that sort of plays out in the building. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. That became a major story for me, and maybe a good example to discuss that is um, one of the buildings that I spent some time working on, the Great Mosque of Aleppo, which we don't think of as an Ottoman building, which is one of the oldest buildings in Aleppo. It was previously a church. It was turned into a mosque in the early Islamic period. But when um, I was trying to reconstruct the way in which Ottoman patrons, Ottoman-affiliated local notables were manipulating the city, its uses, its buildings, Um, The Great Mosque of Aleppo became central, and one of the illustrations of this is that 
the Great Mosque of Aleppo is associated with the early Islamic period, but it is also, it, like many other ancient and symbolically important buildings, an architectural history of Aleppo itself. Its foundation is early Islamic. It has a beautiful, or I should say it had a beautiful early medieval minaret that was destroyed on April 23rd, 2013. Uh, and it had, as I learned during my research, a transformed facade of the facade to the prayer area the one that faces the courtyard, had been completely transformed during the Ottoman period. However, it was transformed in a way that scholars had identified as Mamluk because it utilized the visual conventions of the Mamluk period. The Mamluk era in Aleppo, as in many other areas of Bilad al-Sham, had had a very extensive architectural legacy with a very specific local visual style, uh, with easily identifiable features such as the use of multicolored stones, interlaced voussoirs, and a number of other in, uh, calligraphic styles and a number of other techniques. And um, previous work on the Great Mosque had identified that particular space, which is a beautiful entrance to the Haram as a, a Mamluk building. However, it has an Ottoman period inscription that names the patron, it names the sultan, it is very much an Ottoman type of inscription. So uh, one of the things that I did as an urban and architectural historian is to spend time staring at a building, staring at a space, and to uh, learn to peel away the layers of building, peel away the layers of perceptions, peel away the resonance that a particular building has in the present in order to excavate what it must have meant in the early modern period and how we can retrieve that history today and for what uses. I think what you're saying is really interesting um, and is so important to remember uh, when we talk about architecture because the way cities work, it's not that it's, you know, in some cases it's the case, but we're so focused on the sort of origin moment of a building, right? You know, sort of this is a, this is an Ayyubid building, this is mm -hmm. a Mamluk building, this is an Ottoman building. We're, and we, we define these buildings by the, the, the moment of its creation, if you will. But um, what we forget is that through interventions, and it's I, what I really like um, what Hegnar just said is that um, we forget that sometimes an important aspect of patronage is not necessarily the creation of a new building, but the intervention or the repair of an existing building, and that has its own resonance, especially in Aleppo, um, when you're adding on to a building of significance like the Great Mosque. And um, anyway, this happens all the time in the Ottoman period, and I just think it's really important to mention this, that uh, sometimes we can kind of lose sight of that, that um, patronage can also mean um, inserting yourself into an already existing structure, in effect making it an Ottoman building. We don't think about it, but the Dome of the Rock, to an extent, is an Ottoman building, just as well mm. as it's, um, you know, the earliest Islamic structure that we have, right? Because Sultan Suleiman, like, did major repairs there, and actually they continued right up until the 20th century. Absolutely. What you're talking about, Emily, is... Uh, two different kinds of architectural history. 
a certain kind of architectural history, which is perfectly valid and interesting, focuses on the creations of buildings, the moment of origin, the, the moment of conception. Another kind of architectural history would focus on every moment of a building's history, its ongoing use or non-use, its continued manipulation. Of course, when you're, building with, when you're dealing with buildings that have continued relevance, that are important shrines or that have some kind of important use, they are often continually manipulated by successive generations of urban dwellers. For uh, the type of architectural history that I'm interested in, which has something to do with the cultural history of buildings, the cultural history of cities, I am very interested in the continual manipulation of buildings and spaces and the meanings that these these manipulations convey. Uh, One of the things that's characteristic of the Ottoman period is the awareness that Ottoman patrons seem to have about the historic resonance of certain sites. So they continually revisited the same sites in order to change them, manipulate them, add entrances, shift the position of the entrance, add additional resources to the foundation of the building. And that is a way in which we can follow the perception of these sites by urban dwellers, or at least by some urban dwellers, their continued relevance in the everyday lives and ritual, religious, or political lives of urban dwellers. So we just talked about the interventions, um, the Ottoman interventions um, in the Great Mosque of Aleppo, for example. Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit more about who these patrons were. Um, We're in the provinces, of course. Uh, How can we sort of characterize the kinds of patrons that we're seeing in Aleppo in the 16th and 17th century, as opposed to maybe other provinces in the time or even in Istanbul? We, we can gain a sense of the patrons, the Ottoman patrons that shaped the city of Aleppo, because they used uh, most often a, a legal mechanism um, known as waqf that, of course, is very important in the shaping of Islamic cities since the early medieval period onward. And the Ottomans in Aleppo particular, were particularly liberal with their use of waqf in order to transport transform uh, in order to appropriate for the waqf and to transform entire areas of the city to the point where the waqf administration was the largest landlord of the city of Aleppo. So this is incredibly significant. Through these uh, awqaf, through these charitable foundations, uh, we can get a sense of who the individuals were that set up these foundations. And we can also get a a sense, some sense, of their intentions 
or of the way in which they wanted to present their actions. And that's, that's, we have access to that through the instrument of the waqfiyya or waqfiyya, the endowment deed that, uh, if it is preserved. So I guess the first question we have when we start to talk about these patrons is, are these people from Aleppo? Are they like local notables who are wealthy? Are they, you know, people associated with the Imperial Center? Is it a mixture of both? Who actually has control over how the Vakuf spaces are used? The identity of the patrons and how that identity changes over time is an important clue for us about the development of local dynamics in urban history. It is the dynamics of local struggles over space, competition over competitions over real estate, the takeover of crucial sites give us uh, our one way in which we can access the local dy- the local social dynamics between various urban groups. Broadly, in the second half of the 16th century, Aleppo witnessed a series of major awqaf, major um, Ottoman multifunctional complexes that were all transformed into charitable institutions. And due to that transformation, they still exist today and are documentable for us. The individuals who set up these foundations in the second half of the 16th century were, with I think very minor exceptions, Ottoman officials from the center uh, who served as uh, governors of the province of Aleppo, and it seemed that they were they used that position to establish themselves w- within the city or establish a foothold for their descendants to settle or temporarily settle in the city. A typical patron um, of the 16th century of that pattern is the patron of the Adliya, the the Adliya complex, the second. Uh, extensive multifunctional complex established by an Ottoman patron that transformed the use and orientation of Aleppo's urban core. Dukakinza de Mehmet Pasha was an official from the center. He served as uh, governor of Aleppo and he clearly saw this as an opportunity to establish himself. Uh, or part of his family in the city. And uh, it is um, believed that the Adli family of uh, Aleppo today is descended from them. These, these types of patrons seem to have been able to use their ability as appointed officials from the Ottoman center into a provincial city to acquire choice urban lots, sometimes through protracted series of neg- negotiations or bullying, and to establish foundations that provided a number of urban and charitable services, but also provided their family, descendants, or other members of the household with an income for the foreseeable future. We can see that as a way in which they, these individuals, uh, strategized to provide a foothold for their family on, in um, a provincial city. And the way this normally worked was that they named, they stipulated in the the vakfia that um, the the individual, the mutavali, that has to um, that oversees 
the execution of the endowment be a descendant of the patron, right? A wakfia or a wakfie, a, a charitable endowment deed, is a particular type of legal document that is very useful for urban history and architectural history. It is a contract between the patron and the Islamic community. Uh, it follows a particular pattern, and it's a snapshot of the intentions of the patron at the moment of foundation of the institution. Uh, through the wakfia, the patron, the donor, will have to Uh, make a full inventory of all the assets of, that he intends to give or has given to the foundation, including everything that has been newly built with a degree of information about each of these buildings. And he will, uh, usually he, though there are some she's, um, he, he will uh, list every uh, the conditions for the operation of the endowment. What is the mandated use for the various parts of the building? What are the religious, commercial, charitable, or other activities that the patron wishes to see take place in a particular endowment? And the Waqliya document is also the, pla the place where the patron will lay out his intentions to benefit certain individuals. More often than not, a patron will intend its the foundation to provide material benefit to his own family or members of their household. Uh, one of the ways to do this, as you said, Emily, is to, to give um, specific appointments, uh, jobs within the foundation to specific individuals or, or lines of descendants. For example, Dumatawalli or overseer of the foundation should be a member of my um, lineage. Uh, or you, you can also have outright grants, you know, 50 gold pieces a year for um, descendants of uh, my son, that, that sort of thing. So this allows us as urban historians to trace the income uh, base of, uh, of an emerging Ottoman elite within Um, within Aleppo. Of course, th things change over time. So the patterns that were prevalent in the later 16th century in Aleppo are transformed in the 17th century and, um, and later. One of the things I, I think is so interesting about what you just mentioned in terms of that the, uh, what the Vakfie shows us um, in many cases is it won't actually give you much information about the visual aspects of a building. It won't usually tell you, it won't really give you any kind of architectural information, but what they're so, why, one of the reasons they're so interesting as doc, as historical documents is that they're in a lot of cases, the only means to recover other aspects of patronage that aren't otherwise obvious. For example, um, in many cases, like in terms of a mausoleum, um, there's a stipulation that there should be a uh, Quran readers um reciting the Quran at the windows um, onto the street. Um, also, um, a lot of times there's um, stipulations talking about uh, making provisions for oil and, and uh, candles for, um, for the lighting of the minarets during Ramadan or Ramadan. So um, it's very interesting that you can sort of um, recover. We're talking about, you know, time and space this, this month, you know, to, to try to recover um, the sounds 
and the smells and you know the the these sort of um and the lights these intangible elements that we don't see anymore but um it can really bring to life um how this building was used and encountered and that's the urban experience you talk about in your work a little bit you know going beyond the the physicality of the building itself something you mentioned that's uh, very important is is how these uh, families used uh, patronage as a way of establishing a kind of foothold, embedding themselves into the geography and the property structure of the city and thereby becoming local elites when they were actually originally from the outside. And we can see this pattern, I know, throughout Syria. We see it in Damascus as well. We had a podcast with Zoe Griffith, not about urban architecture, but rather about mulberry trees that witnessed one family going through a similar process of, like, localization essentially which raises the uh, question of the imperial so you talked about how with the uh, ottoman conquest of syria we have this phenomenon of patronage of ottoman figures trying to as we've just said sort of leave their imprint on the city so what i'm wondering is was this pattern here specific to greater Syria? Was this something we can witness throughout other parts of the Ottoman Empire as well? How does Syria fit into the larger context? There is a pattern of the 16th century, particularly the later half of the 16th century, that I'm pretty sure extends to all of the areas that were previously Mamluk, that that were integrated into the Ottoman Empire after 1517, uh, after the Battle of Marjdabek, where the outside of Aleppo, of course, where um, the the Mamluk Empire um, reached its end and was integrated into the Ottoman Empire. One of the aspects of this pattern was that the major Ottoman foundations that we see arising in various parts of Bilad al-Sham and certainly in Aleppo in the second half of the 16th century after the consolidation of Ottoman rule on the former Mamluk provinces is the Im- importation of the Ottoman mosque type, what local sources will call Rum Terzi, um, what um, others have called the franchising of Ottoman Istanbul. This is a process whereby the Ottoman mosque model is brought into these new provinces that had in their mosques, as well as other kinds of architectural spaces, a different practice of space. For example, in a typical Mamluk mosque, you do not have a centralized entrance. You do not have a particular perception of where the minaret should be. You have a different kind of engagement onto the street. Autumn, uh, Mamluk architecture is very much oriented towards street life. All of the um, aesthetically elaborate elements of the architecture are clearly visible to the pedestrian from the street. The architecture is often distorted in order to precisely to address the experience of the pedestrian, whereas Ottoman architecture, as you know, um, follows a very different pattern, especially in in mosques where the mosque is slightly in retreat from the street. It is isolated spatially. It is usually not adjacent to other buildings. 
it incorporates a particular sequence of spaces that have to be entered in a particular way. Uh, the approach to the mosque door is very particular in an Ottoman mosque and very different from the experience of a Mamluk space. So these very jarring um, architectural styles, but also spatial habits, were one way in which the Ottoman presence was made visible onto these cities. So it's a question of architectural style, an easily recognizable Ottoman mosque type, one that can be defined as a lead-covered dome, hemispherical dome, a pencil-shaped minaret, one or more, a mosque that is spatially isolated, that stands in retreat from the street, that has a certain number of dependencies, that maybe has a um, garden cemetery on its back. All of these characteristics that are so familiar to everyone who has spent time in other Ottoman provinces, um, and of course, especially in a city like Istanbul, we, we have to remember that they were completely alien, completely new in 1545 in a place like Aleppo. But this still this still raises a question for me. You know, we see these Ottoman style mosques maybe popping up in Cairo and Damascus and Aleppo, but these are all very large urban centers. What about in new Ottoman regions that are, you know, having buildings that are holdovers from other empires like Seljuks or Artukids and these things in eastern Turkey? Do we see this pattern as well? There are identifiable patterns in the ways Ottomans approach certain spheres of their empire. The argument has been made by Irene Bierman in the case of Crete and other areas that were previously, before the Ottomans, predominantly Christian-ruled. The main church is the building that is uh, manipulated. There's an emphasis on the most topographically salient site. Um, it's a situation where it seems that we see a very clear takeover, Ottomanization, which is Irene Bierman's word, um, now used by everyone. We see a process where Ottomanization relies on the manipulation of a few urban elements, consistently so throughout the area. The process of Ottomanization in its visual dimension in Aleppo seems to follow a slightly different pattern. Uh, partly, presumably, because Aleppo was previously Islamic. It had been a major Islamic site for several centuries. So it was not, this was not a matter of Islamizing a previously Christian-ruled city. It was a matter of Ottomanizing a previously Mamluk-associated city. And so the visual economy of that intervention is slightly different than others. In my view, Ottoman intervention in various parts of their empire was highly localized, highly flexible, but at the same time, highly recognizable. What's interesting to me about the creation of sort of this sort of um, silhouette of a city is that it not necessarily takes into account um, the pedestrians, but the focus is on the people who are approaching the city, the the people, the outsiders coming in. And in the case of Aleppo, I think that resonates with some other changes in the city in terms of, um, you know, its growth in terms as a as a commercial center. That we've got new people coming into the city at this time. 
The Ottoman period was a period of immense growth in cities in the what we now call the Arab world, which are essentially the former Mamluk provinces. As André Raymond pointed out, um, in the 70s, many of the cities around the Levant experienced tremendous ur- urban growth in the Ottoman period, and they thrive. Um, this is partly due to the flourishing of trade under the Ottomans in the 16th century. Uh, in the case of Aleppo, this is particularly important because, uh, as I made the argument in the book, it seemed to me that for the Ottomans, Aleppo's specialty became long the long-distance trade, whereas other cities, such as Damascus, um, were assigned, it seems, uh, more of a religious uh, Sunni, Muslim, sacred um, legacy. The The long-distance trade was sustained primarily through these caravans that crisscrossed um, the land routes between the Ottoman Empire and other cities in other places in Asia. Uh, in addition to, of course, maritime routes, but since Uh, Aleppo is inland, its various approaches from the east, from the west, from the south had particular importance and resonance. It seems that some of the entrances of Aleppo became urban thresholds that had particular architectural events that were staged there that were also accompanied by other kinds of events. Uh, For example, the Beb Antakya, the western gate of Aleppo and the one that leads crucially onto the um, commercial area that the Ottomans invested so many resources in. When you approach Bab Antakya from the west, which was where you would come from as a merchant in the early modern period, after you had unloaded your goods at the port in Iskandarun, which was a creation of the Uh, Ottoman period as a special port of Aleppo, as Bruce Masters has described um, very eloquently. So you, Chris, merchant, arrive to Aleppo from the northwest, and one of the options that you have to enter the city is through Babantakya. And as Chris approaches Babantakya, Chris will see as he goes down the hill, a series of Ottoman-style minarets, pencil-shaped, easily recognizable, so different from the Mamluk towers, so different from the earlier medieval towers of Aleppo, aligned perfectly in this monumental corridor that a succession of Ottoman patrons had built over a period of about 50 years. So in a lot of ways, when we think about who encounters the city, the question comes up, we've talked a little bit about the patrons, but also the other the other side of the coin, and when we talk about architecture and urbanism, are, you know, the people who encounter the architecture. So to what extent do you, I'm curious, to what extent would you say the this Ottomanization of the city was done with a quote-unquote local audience in mind? Were there like different layers of, meaning to different audiences in the city. Um, and maybe maybe even in Aleppo, as you just discussed, maybe um, the question of who's a local, who's a, who's a foreigner, who's an outsider is a little complicated. Since the book, I have been, 
I have become very interested in urban peripheries and the staging of transitional zones between the countryside, productive or non-productive, in the built-up city itself. Um, since I wrote the book, I discovered a wonderful Venetian manuscript that is held, of all places, at the University of Minnesota, the F James Ford Bell Library. It is a manuscript by Ambrosio Bembo, who is a Venetian noble. Bembo's manuscript features a commissioned engraving by Grelot, which is a panorama of the city of Aleppo. The panorama shows that at least for Bembo, who, let's remember, is coming from a European, a Venetian Renaissance culture of viewing cities in a particular way and imaging them in a particular way, we see a heightened awareness of the skyline of the city. Every difference in the silhouette of important buildings is marked whereas the vernacular architecture is pretty generic. Entrances into the city are also um, noted in the Bembo panorama. The Bembo panorama gives you the illusion of offering up the entire city for your visual perusal. The Coming from a Renaissance tradition of city views, it creates the impression that the city is knowable visually. But if you follow the local stories, the local struggles over space, you realize that especially the northern strip, um, the northern periphery of Aleppo was an area where there, were a, there was a great deal of struggle over space, struggle over different uses. And it was a space that gave rise to um, greater predation. It provided opportunities for unconventional characters, unconventional activities to take place. Uh, it, it, as um, I argue in my work on um, a local saint, Sheikh Abu Bakr, who haunted the northeastern periphery, a certain area of the northeastern periphery of Aleppo, which was neither a productive uh, agricultural environment, nor part of the built-up area. This, in, this urban periphery that had uh, no active agricultural or urban use became an environment where his kind of unconventional piety, unconventional use of space could thrive. Recon the project of reconstructing the life and spatial practices of this particular historical individual gave me the opportunity of getting a sense, getting a sense of the perception and use of peripheral, marginalized urban areas that shed light on all of the things, all of the social dimension that Bembo's presumably transparent, objective, um, urban view does not show. And to pair with the, with the Venetian um, engraving that you describe, of course, another, um, probably the most famous image of Lepo, which you describe in your book so um, eloquently, is Matrakshi Nasuf, um, 
representation of Aleppo. And of course, uh, Masrakshi Nasu's um, very famous album um, is a large-scale manuscript showing um, the stages of campaign um, as of, of Suleiman's campaign to Iraq and Iran um, in 1531, I think. And in uh, Matrakshi Nasu's representation of Aleppo, um, as is the case in most of the representations of the cities, and this album, of course, is, so, is really important because in most cases it's the only or if is the first representation of any Ottoman cities. It's, you know, it's a very early, relatively very early uh, manuscript. So it's very important for urban, urban studies. But, um, you know, in almost all the cities, uh, the, the, the ramparts, the walls are very important. And, you know, when you look at a pretty much the entire album, most of the cities are represented sort of as this sort of very, it's very neatly described by, by a wall. And then outside that is just, you know, sometimes even like, you know, just, just, just plants or, or, or animals, it's sort of, there's a very clear distinction between the urban and the rural, right? So what you're talking about is, um, and I mean, of course, that's, that probably wasn't even the reality, like, you know, at his time period, right? This is sort of his ideal understanding of what a city was, right? But what you're talking about is getting at some of the uh, messier uh understandings on, on the periphery of cities, you know, as the city grew past the walls and who were the characters, uh, who were the people that inhabited these places. So you talked about some unconventional um, practices. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What was so unconventional about uh, about the suburbs, about the periphery of Aleppo? The Matrakcha manuscript is very valuable to um, art historians, architectural historians, of course, but it's also very unique, which makes um, working on it a particularly delicate matter. Fortunately, uh, a number of people have worked on Ottoman urban mapping, Ifet Orbay, uh, K. Abel. This is not the place to give a detailed analysis of the peculiarities of Matrakcha's Menazil. However, I think of a manuscript like the Menazil as a parallel form of representation as compared to urban space itself. Urban space and the manuscript are two forms of artistic, architectural activity. They're two parallel forms of representation. They, the manuscript purports to represent cities, but it is an artwork in and of itself. And its relationship to what it purports to represent is a complex matter. So as you noted, the Menazil of Matrakcha has a particular visual economy in the way it chooses to represent cities. It, they are arranged in a sequence based on the progress of the Ottoman military, which is never shown. Humans are not shown in the manuscript. Um, cities are linked through bodies of water. Cities are clearly bounded. Cities are shown identifiable through major monuments that are identified by the Ottomans as being major monuments. Other uh, monuments are not shown. The Menazil is extremely valuable in that it gives us a sense of what some in the Ottoman central administration seem to have considered important to note 
about cities that were already Ottoman, as opposed to other manuscripts with urban views that uh, show images of cities that are not Ottoman, that are yet to be conquered, or that have not been conquered. When I started looking more closely at the image of Aleppo in the Matrakja, and let me note, to my knowledge, it is the only 16th century Ottoman depiction of Aleppo that I'm aware of. You see that Aleppo is identified through the citadel, which of course exists in reality in Aleppo. It's the most topographically salient aspect of Aleppo, uh, but it is rendered in a particular way. And Aleppo is also ca- uh, characterized through its ramparts. The river Kuwait is shown in the right place. Apart from the citadel and the ramparts, the urban space of Aleppo, the architecture of Aleppo, is rendered through a series of, of formulaic, fairly generic buildings. Among them seem to be mosques that, I've argued, look like Ottoman mosques with domed porticos, pencil-shaped minarets. Uh, I argued in the book that this meant, this uh, seemed to indicate that Matrakja presented Aleppo as an Ottomanized city, a city adorned with Ottoman-style mosques that was, identif- that was identifiable through the citadel um, as Aleppo. So it retained a sense of locality that would be visually recognizable to the viewer of the manuscript, but it, had, it was presented by Matrakja as having been Ottomanized through the addition of these privileged, visually distinctive, visually recognizable urban elements. we identified earlier about the transformation of Aleppo under the Ottomans in the 16th century is really an artifact of the later part, the later half of the 16th century. And while patterns of use for the Ottoman city uh, were set then, and in fact continue up to this day, um, patronage is a highly dynamic pattern that changed over the course of the uh, Ottoman period. Uh, as um, time went by, the later 16th, the last part of the 16th century, early 17th century, as everyone who listens to Ottoman history podcast knows, was the Jelali revolts, the environmental pressures of that time period. And um, Aleppo experienced a different, different pattern of urbanization, where instead of the large multifunctional complexes that it reinvested the center, the commercial center of Aleppo. Um, the 17th century sees um, sees smaller acts of patronage spread in a higher, in a larger range of the city, away from the urban core and uh, addressing the needs of different peripheral neighborhoods. As I was doing my research, I was very intrigued that there were many, many biographies of a particular saint um, named Sheikh Abu Bakr who had lived 
in the northern northeastern periphery of Aleppo. Many travelers to Aleppo had also commented on the shrine of Sheikh Abu Bakr as being one of the most important, one of two most important Sufi shrines of the city. When I made my way to the shrine of Sheikh Abu Bakr as it stood then in the northeastern periphery of Aleppo in a neighborhood now known as locally as Sheikh Abu Bakr, so named after the shrine itself, up on a hill, it, it was um, the shrine had been devastated during the early 1980s Islamist uprising in Syria. Some of the domes had been destroyed. And of course, um, as you may know, Sufism, the practice of Sufism under um, the Ba'athist regime had been forced into um, a less overt, um, less overt form of practice. So when I had access to it as a field worker, the shrine, it was very difficult to understand why the shrine that seemed to be interesting, but not very important, had been so important in the past. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to find some sources that shed some light on Sheikh Abu Bakr, and they were the mystical biographies of the saint that had been written um, over the course of, uh, that had been written by ulama based in Aleppo over the course of uh, several hundred years from the uh, later 16th century all the way to the early 20th century. Uh, when I tried to uh, uh, cross-reference biographies of Sheikh Abu Bakr in central Ottoman sources, he didn't seem to exist. So that was my clue that there was something about this man, about his practices, that was incredibly important locally, but seemed to have no resonance uh, at the imperial center. So as somebody who was very interested in the process, in the center-periphery relationships, the asymmetries of power between a provincial city, the Ottoman center, the local Ottoman um, elite, I became very interested in this particular character and the story of the shrine. As I read what uh, Aleppan ulama had written about uh, Sheikh Abu Bakr, uh, I discovered that he had been, he was presented as someone who was a local saint, who was um, not an educated person. He spoke only in the local dialect, and yet he had power over the most powerful Ottoman patrons. So I, I saw it as a way in which the, the province was reasserting or inverting relationships of control between the imperial center and the local, the local city. What the, the story of Sheikh Abu Bakr, his life story, the transformation of his image as a saint in the mystical biographies over the next few hundred years, and the rise of a shrine over his grave, and the transformation of that shrine into suburban neighborhood, what that entire story showed me once I was able to piece it together to the best that it is uh, possible is that this represented a, a new pattern, a new era in the urban history of Aleppo, and one that illustrates 
the expansion of the urban periphery in the 17th century, the conquest or the urbanization of the periphery of the cities, especially the uncultivated land that lay at the around the city of Aleppo. Uh, the figure of the unconventional saint, like Sheikh Abu Bakr, appeared as a pioneering figure uh, for the urbanization of the city. A final ironic twist, perhaps, in the story of the shrine of Sheikh Abu Bakr was that um, an area, a space that started out as um, an outpost of an unconventional pious practice where uh, Sheikh Abu Bakr and the band of ragtag dervishes that gathered around him uh, did um, did all kinds of inversions, including consuming forbidden substances, engaging in caricatures of domestic behavior, um, befriending animals instead of people, uh, even things like reciting uh, the Fatiha out of order, you know, offenses against everyday, uh, you know, polite um, uh, Islamic sociability. Uh, the uh, irony for me was that this uh, this area of the city that had that had housed this unconventional community of dervishes was after the death of the saint co-opted through a series of stages into the urban order of the city, the urban imperial Ottoman order, and eventually by the early 17th century became a privileged Ottoman foothold onto the countryside to the extent that Ottoman governors sent to Aleppo now chose to uh, reside in the shrine of St. Sheikh Abu Bakr, and sometimes chose to be buried there. Ökuz uh, Mehmet Pasha is the example. So it's kind of like a gentrification of the neighborhood, right? Ottoman gentrification, yes. So I'm sure that anyone um, who's listening to this podcast has in their back of their mind that you know, as we talk about the interventions over time, um, the transformations of Aleppo as a city is that at the current moment, uh, Aleppo is in the middle of another major intervention. I don't know if we even really want to call it that, but there it is in the process of a pretty significant urban transformations. In February, a group of us uh, who work on Aleppo are Halabiyat specialists, as we say, met in Montreal um, at, at a conference organized by our uh, colleague Stefan Winter. Uh, the gathering was called a Requiem for Ottoman Aleppo. It was meant to mark and mourn the fact that for the reasons that we know, the study of Ottoman Aleppo that had begun to be such a vibrant field with all kinds of interesting interventions and discoveries is going to have to be on hold while the city that we love is being devastated by a terrible conflict whose end is nowhere in sight. As an urban historian, I'd like to will myself to be optimistic and to 
make the point that over the very long period, cities in history are often devastated and are transformed. War, conflict, destruction, intentional vandalism are forces, negative, horrible, devastating historical forces that also reshape cities, transform cities. They are a kind of intervention that reformulate the urban environment. It is very difficult for us who love Aleppo, who are are friends that are caught in the conflict today, to see this as a reformulation. We see the pain that our friends are going through. We um, are heartbroken by the destruction of buildings whose every stone is precious to us. It's it's very difficult as an urban historian to feel that the the slides and the um, digital images that have taken over the years in Aleppo are now historical documents of sites that are damaged or no lo- no longer there. Uh, but I think we can only acknowledge that that is the case and mark um, the destruction and hope that within our lifetimes the destruction can stop and that Aleppo can become the the beautiful, vibrant, unexpected city that we knew. We are living in days where those who love Aleppo and spent years studying it and documenting it, when we meet each other, our common statement is, Kanat Halab, Aleppo was... I hope that that can change in the not-too-distant future. I know you're expressing a very difficult sentiment here that anybody who is connected to Syria in some way, particularly as a, you know, academic topic, it always feels so distant being intellectually connected to a place. And then when something so violent and sudden and visceral starts to happen, it's, it's almost paralyzing. I think art and architectural historians... Uh, along with other historians who have in their possession digital images, digital copies of documents that are in 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 Syria, I think maybe some kind of collective project to gather these resources would uh, be an excellent way of engaging sort of productively with the tragedy that's going on rather than, you know, folding our hands and, and sobbing in the corner. In the uh, Syrian Studies Association, a group of us have proposed to begin a digital Syria project uh, where we um, gather uh, our digital records of uh, the architecture of Aleppo and the documents. But um, Chris, I think many of us are too heartbroken to proceed. Well, indeed, over the past years, as we've been releasing photographs and material related to the history of Syria on Autumn History Podcast, posting pictures from Library of Congress of mosques and other buildings that some of them, as you say, have been damaged and are no more, realizing that uh, the field work you did itself is becoming a historical document as the city is changing. It really puts in perspective the whole practice of history, and uh, we've kind of arrived to a really unpleasant confrontation with the uh, dark reality of the present in our discussion of the uh, architectural history of Aleppo. And so while we've had to raise some of these 
issues regarding the present. I mean, it is inevitable that the past is always seen to the present. And uh, Dr. Wattenpah, I want to thank you so much for coming in and talking about your research that does touch on these very visceral emotions that I know you and everyone who's connected to Syria is going through today. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Emily. Now, for those who are looking for more information on the topic, a complete bibliography of Dr. Wattenpah's publications, some other books and articles related to the history of urban Aleppo and, and uh, cities of Ottoman Syria can be found on our website. We also find a few pictures um, of some of the buildings and city spaces we've been talking about today. That's also a place where you can leave your comments and questions and get in touch with the rest of the Ottoman History Podcast community through Facebook. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. <laughs>